ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, please be advised that this conversation contains content that might be upsetting. Please use discretion when listening. When Leanne Little turned 16 years old, her parents gifted her a horse to break in. They wanted to teach her about accountability and ownership of faults and failures. They also instilled in her the passion to strive for greatness. These lessons have helped shape much of Leanne's life. Leanne Little is an Arundel woman from Alice Springs. At 18, she became the first Aboriginal policewoman in South Australia, but a brutal attack left Leanne unable to serve. Instilled with a passion for justice, she turned to law, fighting for the rights and lives of her people. Today, Leanne is the Director of the Aboriginal Justice Unit within the Department of the Attorney-General and Justice for the Northern Territory Government. Leanne Little, welcome to Conversations. Thanks, Charlie. Your early life in Alice Springs, what was it like? Life was good. We went bush a lot. Our extended family had uh, several cattle stations. So mum's country's uh, Andoya to the east of Alice Springs and dad's country's Alice Springs itself. He's a traditional owner for Alice Springs. And uh, mum grew up in Alice Springs until she was taken away. Dad's father, he owned a lot of businesses around town. He had the brick-making business. At some time in his life, he owned Tea Tree Roadhouse. Well, we obviously had uh, the cattle stations. He owned Mount Ebenezer Station. So we've always stayed in Central Australia. And um, mum and dad met in their 20s. And, yeah, the rest is history, really. Now, on weekends and holidays, you spent a lot of your time working on the family cattle station. Tell us more about that. Oh, yeah, they were good times. But they were tough times too, like... Mm. Uh, Dad had four daughters and I'm sure he wanted four sons, so he had to make do. And uh, he got us up four o'clock in the morning and we probably didn't go to bed till eight, nine o'clock at night working uh, working out in the bush um, with the cattle. And then we'd have to get up in the middle of the night and check the yards and check the cows. That was tough, but it was the best education we could ever have got. Did your family own the land? Dad and my grandfather always used to say, we're not owners of the land. We don't come from here. We're just taking custody of it. Our purpose is to fatten our cows, but we always respected the owners of the land. We had an Aboriginal camp uh, for traditional owners just on one of the stations and we only employed Aboriginal people on our cattle stations because my grandfather was a very... A worldly person, even though he obviously only left Australia when he was at the war. But he said Aboriginal people need to know how the economy works. We had ration stations on the station, but he said, I'm going to pay you wages and then you need to make a decision of what you do with your money. And if you decide to buy rations or if you want to save some money, that's your choice. But you have to engage in the economy and know how the money works in the system to function and live in the community. So you, your grandfather would have brought up your father with those same sorts of values, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Like, mm. There's no two doubts about it. Dad's and all his siblings were brought up tough and strong and very grateful for what we were able to do. But that, those sorts of lessons are lessons you can't learn in the classroom, that's mm. for sure. 
How old were you and, and what, what was your job on the, on the cattle stations? We always did the yards. We did the branding in those days. You know, it was fires and the brands and the tagging and we did uh, a lot of work when the tuberculosis program was in place here in the Territory. Um, we moved from mustering from horses to motorbikes to then later on helicopters. So we'd seen some changes in the way we worked with cattle. We would always bring them in and brand them or put them on a truck to go for sale and so forth. We basically did what we was told. We were told, to be perfectly honest. Mm. Your father obviously had a very strong work ethic. Did you get that from him? Oh, absolutely. I used to see Dad go away for months and months and months and then he'd drive all night to get to us kids to spend a weekend with us and only spend time with us and then he'd leave four o'clock in the morning and get back to work two, three hundred, four hundred k's away. Yeah, he was a great dad. Were you one of his favourites? Oh, I wouldn't say one of his favourites. We all know who his favourite is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but for me, uh, I was certainly the one that challenged him. Right. Now, he was, a, he was a bit of a TV star. Can you tell us about that? Oh, yeah. So um, Dad was actually Charlie the Tracker in the Boney series in Boney Buys a Woman and Arthur Upfield wrote the book on that. And uh, I didn't believe him for a very long time. In fact, I got mixed up once and I told my school friends that he was in a Bond movie instead of the Boney series. And, um, yeah, and, I, and then I found all his uh, theatre notes and bits and pieces and then I found some old footage not so long ago on the internet and it was very funny to watch. Were you proud of him? I mean, would you look at him and think, that's my dad, he's a TV star? I'm proud of Dad no matter what he did. Like, you know, like he's still, he's still my idol. He's he's an amazing person like Mum. Yeah. Uh, now, for your 16th birthday, you were given a gift, your own horse to rake in. Tell us about the horse. I remember uh, I've got an identical twin sister, Lynette, and... Uh, the horses were in the yards and we got very excited because there was palominos there, there were flea bitten greys, there were um, so many beautiful looking horses that we'd mustered up and put into the yard and we weren't quite sure what was going to happen to them. And Dad said, right, so it's your 16th birthday, pick which horse you want. And I just went, wow. But then came the clangor. It's like, now you've got to break it in. I mean, how do you break in a horse? When we were growing up and what we'd seen for many years on the stations and with our families is that they use this really old method when you flog the horse horse till it, you know, broke down, you had kicking straps on it, you had, you know, you, you sat on its back and it bucked and you basically were breaking its spirit and you were showing who was boss to this horse. And Dad didn't like that. He thought that was pretty cruel. So... For some reason or other, he found out about, ironically, the same name as him, the Jeffrey Method. And he and my sister went to a course and they learnt how to work with the horse to calm it down and not be a, make the horse afraid. So you're one-on-one and break it in to the point where you could ride it within hours. It was an amazing method and it was a method that we used for years and years to break in our horses. Was it a bit like building a, a, a relationship with the horse, that sort of thing? Yeah, it, was, it wasn't cruel. It was like understanding that the horse had either never been around humans before, uh, them coming up to you, 
sniffing you, putting sandbags, uh, you know, over it like Hessian bags, but not being cruel like it used to happen. And your father said to you, it's never the horse's fault when something goes wrong. It's always the rider. Oh, yeah, he says that often to me, yeah, even today without me doing any more riding. Look, there are some life lessons in that. Has it informed the way that you live your life? Oh, absolutely. Like, I think every lesson, when I look back on it now, were lessons that have helped me build resilience, deal with grief and trauma, and recognise that I've got skills and I'm in a privileged space because privilege is in that I haven't had experiences that others have had. And with that comes a sense of obligation and opportunity. And I've ran with those opportunities and sprinted. Now, tell us more about your parents. Were they very balanced in the way that they raised you, did you think? Yeah, well, mum was just wonderful. Mum got taken away and then she came back much uh, later when she was an adult. So I think her experiences have been taken away from Alice Springs, even though she had a mother at the time who could look after her and uh, she was taken on the disguise of that she was to be going on a holiday and obviously she wasn't going on a holiday and then she was put in an orphanage and then into a, a, a girls' boarding school. I think those lessons in life of being away from family, culture, not having a relationship with her parents made sure that when she married Dad that uh, we were going to have what she didn't. And the same with Dad. I mean, Dad has a lot of siblings. Mum had very few, but Dad was built and brought up tough. I mean, he was on a shovel when he was age 10, so he had to go out and help bring in income for the family. Uh, I couldn't imagine sending my 10-year-old out under Mm. those circumstances. That's what they did in those days. I mean, Dad builds roads and bridges, and he did that in, you know, the humidity, the the build-up, all those sorts of places across the entire Territory, and he never whinged once. And he used to get frustrated because he knew more than any engineers, but he was never given the opportunity to go and study engineering at a university. And he knew more than any engineer, and yet they treated him badly often. Would it be fair to say your mum was softer, but your dad was more the disciplinarian? Would that be fair to say that? No, I think it was the other way around. Really? (laughs) Yeah, I think dad was a lot more softer because he wasn't home all the time. Mum was left looking after the five children and she had to be mum and dad at the same time. Mum had certain characteristics. You know, she certainly had a lot more empathy and sympathy, but dad made sure that the time that he spent with us was absolutely critical our time Hmm. because he knew that he had to go um, only days later and we wouldn't see him for months and months. You grew up in Alice Springs in the 70s. What was the town like at that time? The town is a lot different than what it is now. Uh, I went, did all my schooling in Alice. I went to Gillen Primary School, then Alice Springs High School. There was still levels of tension there with racism and so forth, but there were a lot of Aboriginal people in the town. It was, it was a polite town on the outside, but these dark... Uh, areas where only Aboriginal people went to certain shops, only Aboriginal people drank at certain bars. And we were pretty lucky because most of our weekends we'd, we'd have to go out to the stations or we'd go bush and 
Uh, we didn't spend a lot of time um, in our teenage years because Dad had given us the horses, and I think that was a um, that that was something that he certainly thought about because it meant that we weren't roaming the streets in town. Uh, when we were teenagers, we had these horses to look after that took up all our time. And Leanne, you, you didn't see too many Aboriginal people coming in to live in town, and that's something you question. Yeah, that like I, there was not a lot of Aboriginal people who um, owned houses where we lived, and if they did, they would be coming into town and living in town camps. It was just evident to me throughout my younger years that. Colour was an issue and when I asked the questions to my parents and my aunties and uncles, no one really was able to label or identify why it was that we were being treated differently or why people weren't coming into town and didn't live where we lived. Now, you describe yourself as a problem child when you were were young. Um, Were you a problem child? Yeah, I think I was. (laughs) (laughs) Why? Um, Because I uh, was very energetic and I asked too many questions that no one had answers for. I was always quite bright as a child and it was very difficult for my parents to answer questions where they probably didn't want me to know fully some of the truths around why there was separation of white and Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people in the town as a child and couldn't process that, but, you know, there was enough there for me to say uh, there's a problem and when people didn't answer my questions. But I also was one who wouldn't sit and be satisfied just with a simple answer. I was always questioning more Mm. and quite often I was told that I talked way too much. When you found out your mother was part of the stolen generation, is that something you like? I wanted to know more about? Yeah, it was never hidden from us that Mum had been taken away and then she bought, she was brought back. Um, I think that's why she chose the careers that she did. What I couldn't handle as a, as a child and now even as an adult was where was the outrage? Where was the outrage from people to say this is not acceptable, this is not right that you take just based on the colour of people's skin, children away from their mother. I mean, she had a mother there. She had a sister there who also had other children. So it wasn't as if this was something new to them or that they were neglecting their children. It was purely based on the skin tone of the child. And I don't know how people just sat back and went, yep, that's okay with me. I'm okay with that. I sit back and I think we fight over issues around forestry, around other human rights, but I cannot remember anybody jumping up and down and saying, this is unacceptable, this is is just barbaric, this is just wrong. That's probably what worried me the most Mm. because how could you not know that taking children from their parents was going to do the damage that it did? When um, when children are taken away and they grow up, they they don't talk about that happening. There may have been trauma or whatever. Did your mum ever talk about it in any detail with you? Very little. It wasn't until she, she was sick that she started to talk about it. Hmm. It's an emotional thing to, to talk about, even for the next generation, even the generation after that. It's really difficult to try and talk about it. I see you're emotional now, but I, I understand that. Um, what worries me 
is those stories will be gone and everyone will not understand the depth and the hurt that people felt as a result. We've got museums full of artwork and artefacts, but we do not have a museum where we tell the full story of the stolen generation. It's a story that we all need to own and hear and take some responsibility for because we're kidding ourselves if we didn't think that it has had an impact not only on that family but more generations later. Mm. Does it get any easier talking about it, Leanne, for you? Um, in one way, it wasn't my story to tell. It was mum's and the fact she couldn't and didn't want to share that story in the detail, I think, is problematic. She Maybe she felt like... She was ashamed that it had happened to her, maybe because she didn't have the answers to the questions that I was asking. She, she felt um, responsible. And I think that's a heavy burden for children to own into their adulthood without answers to questions. And I'm, I don't think saying sorry is enough. I don't think compensation is enough. I think we are we should do better as a country and acknowledge first that it has happened and secondly be mature enough to say what should we do next to heal the pain because it doesn't stop at mum. It's impacted on us kids. It's impacted on the grandchildren. In fact, it's probably she's told more to the grandchildren than what she said to me, which is interesting. Hmm. Are there things that she said to you that you um, hold on to still now? About that time in her life? Oh, absolutely. I, the lies that were told to her to go on a holiday and never come back. She was always saying that you need to keep your promise. The fact that she was uh, disguised, taken under the disguise of being on a scholarship in a school in Ballarat and people, um, she wouldn't have any textbooks so she wasn't given any textbooks, so she'd have to wait till the other students would finish their, using theirs before she could loan them. Um, teachers would tell her that they didn't want to look at her black face in the classroom because it made them sick, and so she'd spend a lot of time in the corridors. I don't understand how people can be so hurtful and cruel and not own that behaviour. Did your mother's siblings, any of those, get taken to? Her brother got taken with her, who was actually younger than her when she was taken. They took her and him um, miles apart and she didn't see him for years and years and years. They made no attempt to reconcile the brother and the sister together until my uncle was staying with, um, ironically, a, a German family that had a prisoner of war uh, mother and he mentioned mum to the family after they said he could stay um, with that family. He said, what about my sister? Can she come live with us? And they had seven children of their own, uh, very poor. He was a school teacher at uh, the school that my uncle was was um, at and they went and found mum. And how ironic is that and how grateful are we that that family took mum and Uncle Arthur in? Did they, did they reconnect and get on in later years? They did. They reconnected. 
very, very close to her brother, but her, her brother died quite early, age 42, from a heart attack. Um, he too, I think, had scars from being taken away from his mother and the relationship that mum and uncle Arthur had with their mother was not, certainly not like the relationship that I had with my parents. Now your mum went on to work in student counselling as a result you always had at risk and vulnerable children staying at your family home. What, what are your memories of that, those times? We never had a meal with just the five siblings and mum and or dad when he was in town. We had so many children often at the dinner table. We, you know, slept head to toe in the beds. We had bunk beds. We shared everything that we had because it was clear to us that these children needed a safe place and it wasn't our it, it wasn't our place to question why they were there. We knew that something had happened terrible in their life and mum had brought them home and we were, we were quite generous kids. We shared everything that we had with um, children that stayed with us for very lengthy periods of time, but the only thing off bounds were the horses. How many people would be sitting around the, the, the dinner table? Sometimes we'd have four, sometimes we'd have five. I mean, we were lucky because we had uh, a lot of meat coming from the station all the time. Uh, Mum and Dad had a huge veggie patch, so we always had fruit and vegetables. We had lots of fruit trees. I, I can't remember a time when we didn't have other people staying with us. Mm. It was Our house was full of kids, and we loved it. We loved it. Oh, we were, you know, happy. We were, we were brought up to share. It was very clear to us that even though we didn't have a lot, we had a lot more than others. Mm. So you grew up sharing and caring, but not sharing the horses. Not sharing the horses. Why not? Dad would say you need to, you know, understand horses, and you know, we'd we'd walk people on our horses, and that was about it. But when it came to doing the feeding and the riding and the training and so forth. That that was our that was our they were our horses. Do you think because of your mum's experiences, her, her own personal experiences, she knew how important love and safety was for children? Was that oh, the driving yeah. thing for her? Oh yeah, like I think she knew that because she didn't have that growing up, or it was taken away from her. That a stable family life that had role models that showed you what respectful relationships looked like. I mean. Mum and Dad were together nearly 60 years. You know, they had such love for each other, even when they were hundreds of kilometres apart. We, we used to talk on the Royal Flying Doctor Codan radio every day to Dad. So even though there weren't mobile phones or phones where Dad would ring, we'd ring up on the Codan radio and talk to Dad, which was just great. At what point, Leanne, in your life did uh, the issue of having education and higher education become something talked about? Oh, because mum was the student counsellor and she was also the truant officer, there was no way that we could skip school. So, <laughs> to I mean, try? No, nah, I never did. It wasn't game enough. Um, yeah, we, would have, we would have paid consequences big time mm. if we did that. But school was always important, I think, because I was such an inquisitive kid. I wanted to learn more and more and get answers to some of those questions that I didn't get from my aunties and uncles, mum and dad. Your brothers and your sisters have all gone through higher education. Is that your parents instilling that, driving that for you? Is that where that comes from? Mum always used to say, 
if you get an education, they can't take that away from you and you're always on an equal playing field. So do year 12, which was matric in my era, and then obviously went on and did some uni degrees after that. But mum was adamant that education was the key to success. Now, you and your brothers and sisters have all achieved big things. Your brother, Jamie, who you call the golden boy. Why is he the golden boy? Oh, because he was a favourite. <laughs> was he? He was a boy. So uh, it was very clear in the early stages, even though Dad might deny it, that uh, Dad wanted boys and he had four girls before he had the one boy. I mean, Jamie's just a likeable bloke. He's a, he's a lovely kid. He's achieved everything that he's ever wanted in life and it's really interesting the career choices that you know the kids have made because they're so removed from what dad did and how mum grew up in fact it's almost that they gave us what they wanted but never could have I remember one day sitting under the ironwood tree we had a block on the outskirts of town and there was an aeroplane flying over that and we were out there having a barbecue we looked up in the sky and Jamie said I'm going to be flying one of those one day and we laughed so hard because we just didn't think it was possible and weren't we proven wrong. It's it's experiences like that that make you sceptical when you hear people say you can't be what you can't see. What's your thoughts there? I think that is a barrier to success. I mean, I just look at my own journey. Jamie had never seen an Aboriginal international pilot ever in his life. I'd never seen an Aboriginal police officer ever in my life. Kerry had never seen an Aboriginal stock inspector in her life. There were so many things that we didn't see, but because we had role models in other ways and we were supported to believe that you could be what you wanted to be, Mum and Dad made it really clear that I was never going to be an astronaut if I said I was going to be one. Um, They were realists and... They made sure that you weren't so ambitious that it was way out of your your, your talents, but they made sure that if we were going to dream, we were going to dream big and you were going to get there. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Charlie King. I'm not sure how this all fits, but your brother's sitting under the tree saying you want to be a pilot and you somewhere coming out and saying... I think I want to be a police officer. How did that happen, Leah? Mum tells the story when I was about 10. I said, that's it, I want to be a policewoman. And there was utter silence um, in the room because it certainly wasn't an occupation that you chose as an Aboriginal person. And everyone was sort of like, oh, yeah, radio, she'll grow out of it. But, of course, I never did. But you, you, you stayed true to your, your dream. Yeah, I think I had seen a lot of officers at work and in the station when we had car rollovers and also in town, and I didn't like what I saw. Mm. So I decided that it needed to change. And the reality was if 
you want it to change, then sometimes you have to change it and be that change agent. And I'm pretty fearless and we're pretty all pretty fearless and we once we set our goals on something, that's where we go. And I was pretty happy with myself that I got there in the end. Mm. You became the first female Aboriginal police officer in South Australia and you served for about a decade, but it wasn't easy. In that time, you said you experienced a lot of racism. What was going on? Oh, yeah, life was pretty tough. I sort of expected it from the public. Like that, that I wasn't naive enough that I didn't think that the public would be giving me a hard time. But... I certainly didn't expect it from my own colleagues who are, you know, in the blue uniform. Did you feel uncomfortable when you heard discussions about Aboriginal people amongst the, your oh, colleagues? Yeah. All the time. Like, the conversations were using, yeah, but we're not talking about you, Leanne. Uh, you're not one of those. And that's when I realised that people, people were wrong and that no matter how much they worked with Aboriginal people, they were still capable of having these these beliefs which had no um, merit whatsoever, that people, good people could be bad people. That's mm. what I learnt very quickly. Because you, you make the effort to try and shut it out, don't you? Because you're sort of thinking to yourself, it's not about me, but, it, but in fact it is. You don't want to believe that you're not part of a team, but it soon became very aware that when you get a group of people together and uh, they may not individually accept that sort of behaviour, but um, in a crowd, very few people speak up. Did you go through thinking, I, I can't walk away from this because it's my parents didn't think it was a good idea in the first place? Did, did, was that in the back of your mind? Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. I'm a bit of a fighter, so I thought that things would get better. I thought it can't possibly be like this forever. As I went up through the ranks or as I went out even to, to Aboriginal communities, that things would be better. But I was wrong. Let's, let's go to the attack that, that happened on you. It came to a head in Port Pirie. You pulled over a vehicle for what you thought was a minor traffic incident. What took place that day? I don't remember a lot about it because I think I've blocked a lot of it. But here was a guy, we pulled him over for a traffic incident and he just... King hit me and he was a, a, a boxer. It was pretty well over and done with very quickly. And, uh, yeah, it, it remained the catalyst for me in the end to leave the police force. What state did the attack leave you in physically? Uh, I got injured on my back. I ended up having four uh, significant back operations and uh, along with the other cuts and bruises and so forth. But, you know, I had, uh, I, I have a permanent disability as a result of that injury. You decided to see a lawyer? I saw a lawyer because um, obviously my assault had happened at work and that's, I'd gone to the Aboriginal Legal Rights Movement in South Australia and I remember the lawyer asking me just some generic questions and general questions because she was, a bit, was like, what's it like being a police, Aboriginal policewoman, Leanne? And I, I just rattled things off and she just went, are you serious? She said, uh, we need to sit down and talk about this because this is more than just a work cover issue. This is about discrimination that we need to take further. And uh, I was so grateful because I think I'd been so immune to not wanting, not even thinking or believing that what people were doing and saying to me was a racist because I wanted to survive in my career. 
it was a hard lesson to learn that other people said that's just um, you have to do something about this. You can't allow this to um, to go on. How, how difficult was the trauma? It was pretty bad. I went to some pretty dark places. I came back to Alice Springs to rehabilitate and to be with my family, and that was a saving of me. I think uh, prior to that, I was hiding in cupboards, not opening front doors. I wouldn't go out anywhere. Uh, I was a very scared person, and prior to that, I was a you know I was a pretty confident person who you know was the the life of the party. The matter then went to court. How how did it how did it end up? I mean, it wasn't going to end well, no matter what. And soon as I knew that I'd taken it to the uh, federal court for the human rights and equal opportunity commission. Um, I knew my career was over. There was no way that I was going to be able to go back to the police force. We had some gruelling 35-odd days in court. It um, was me giving evidence in the witness box for a very long time. I can remember my mother sitting in the courtroom with all the court reporters and, you know, she's writing notes and I've still got those notes today and I read back on them not so long ago and they were very, um, they're lying, they're lying, Leanne, you know, and she's handing those to the lawyers. Um, It was a traumatic time, not just for me, but for the entire family. And when you were rehabilitating, you didn't waste time. You got busy doing other things. Tell us about that. Mum and Dad were pretty adamant that I wasn't going to be sleeping all day and falling into a dark hole. So um, they said, you need to get up and start organising your life and thinking about your future and get onto it. So I decided to do a science degree at university. That was more environmental science, but you'd had experience already through your grandmother. You knew some of this particular work, didn't you? Oh, yeah. My grandmother was like a walking encyclopaedia. She knew every plant and animal you know, in Central Australia, its use, its habitats, its breeding cycles, how it functioned, everything, everything. And um, she, my other grandmother was really good uh, with the use of fire. She was a fire lighter, not a firefighter. And people talk about Aboriginal people doing mosaic burns. It's not about mosaic burns. It's actually quite scientific how Aboriginal people go out there and light fires in the in the in the landscape to manipulate that landscape, not just for green pick for kangaroos, but um, so that there's insects and even to the point where people will burn specific areas so that there's no prickles for when they want to go hunting. Um, they can walk on bare soil and not get prickles in their feet. So I learned a lot of those skills and I'm ever so grateful for it because it's certainly put me ahead of the pack when I was in my science degree Mm. and more. And at some point you decided to study law? Why? Because I'd seen all the injustices as as a child and I think after my science degree it gave me an opportunity to go, right, what do you really want to do? I said to myself, this is like a second chance in life for me. I was financially secure. I wasn't afraid anymore. I thought I'd been very courageous through the court case that nothing, nothing could frighten me anymore. I'd been to the dark places. I'd been hurt. I'd been called names and treated badly. So that was what I wanted to do and... There was no reason why I I couldn't do it. 
Did that get you then thinking more about what you wanted to actually do with that knowledge? How, how did you move with what you'd learnt into doing something about those bigger issues? Oh, well, that's when, I mean, I went over to the UN and I realised that um, I had to be almost the smartest person in the room at the end of the day. And the only way I was going to be there was to get the education and the international experience. So that's when I went over to the UN and started working with the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights. And uh, I recognised there that there were other Indigenous First Nations groups there that were dealing with exactly the same issues that we were dealing with in Australia and that, that, that some people had solutions on the tables and others hadn't. Uh, and that sparked into me a need to do more than what I was doing than just being a lawyer. And your focus was on the justice system? Always. Yeah. Always. I think because I'd seen uh, what happens when people are heard, when they're treated fairly and when they feel like that justice has been served. Tell us about the Aboriginal justice work that you actually built up with all the consultations you did with communities around the Northern Territory around Australia as well. What, what drove you to go into that area? I think there was a, a multiple reasons. I'd, while I was in the police force or while I was rehabilitating at that same time, we'd lost our sister through a domestic violence incident. Going through that court case showed me that we could, have, we could do better. What justice meant for Aboriginal people was very different to what it meant to mainstream um, users of the system and that we needed to speak to Aboriginal people and not just ask them what can we do better and what do you need for the justice system, but how would you be willing to participate in a system to make it better where we didn't have more victims, where Aboriginal people weren't filling not only the jails but the cemeteries and the hospitals and the child protection system. And overall, uh, what I got back was unbelievably uh, a wealth of information that I never, ever thought that I would ever get. Did you get much resistance when you started looking at that, that particular issue, like the prisons filling up and the cost of a new prison and all of those other issues that come with it? I think the debate on the table was do the crime, do the time, and if people weren't committing the crimes, then they wouldn't be in prison. But the reality is is that there are points and triggers that can be totally unfair to people um, because of your disability, because of your colour of your skin, because of your uh, gender, and that a lot of people aren't conscious of their biases and prejudices and uh, they continue to operate with those in place. And uh, I could see very clearly there were different outcomes for Aboriginal people who had committed similar crimes to that of non-Aboriginal people, yet the outcome was so different. Mm. What, what changes need to be made? What, what, what are you striving for in the justice system for it to change? There's lots of things that need change and need change very quickly I believe that we need to build role models and support respectful relationships. We need to build alternatives to custody where Aboriginal people can get access to trauma and grief counselling and deal with the pain that they've been carrying for so long, quite often from a previous generation. Aboriginal people need access to parenting programs because of our history 
some parents who were taken away have had had no role modelling or parents to help them know how to parent and um, that extra bit of help is really important to keep our children out of the child protection system. I think we need to identify racisms in systems and accept that and, and uh, agree to dismantle those so that blind justice really is blind justice and it can be served. You travelled all over the Territory. What information were you getting back from people out in the bush? It was pretty bad. First off, we weren't sure that we would get a lot of people out of meetings because they were fatigued from being being consulted or for telling people what uh, they wanted changed in the system. But we got hundreds at some of our consults and that was because I think there was a level of credibility um, at, on the table with the, with my staff and myself when we were meeting um, communities. People were saying that they needed to be treated better, they wanted access to services that they should be entitled to, but they believed that uh, the uh, responses I were getting from service providers, particularly through government, uh, were just and was just the way that they deserved to be treated because they were Aboriginal, and that isn't the case. People should be able to pick up a phone and uh, get access to um, healthcare that they need, get access to a police response. Sure, it might take a bit longer for the uh, RFDS to come in and give you that um, service of care. It might take a bit longer for the uh, police to come in and respond to that. But, but that's a basic human right that we're all entitled to and Aboriginal people weren't receiving that. Mm. I went to a, uh, a talk you made uh, soon after you were travelling around the Territory doing these talks. I remember sitting there thinking everything you were saying I understood. It was very clear that things were not good. Did you get that sort of reaction from the talks you did? And I must say to you, they were brilliant talks that you, you actually did. Did you get that sort of feeling that you were hitting the mark, if you like? Oh, absolutely. Mm. Straight away. Most of the time we said very little on the microphone and the microphone was lost in the crowd and all we were getting was feedback from Aboriginal people and it was encouraging that they weren't just saying, you need to fix this, you need to fix that, uh, you're picking on my kid, um, my kid shouldn't be in jail. It wasn't that type of a conversation at any of the consites. Even when we went into the prisons, what people were saying is we need access to programs and services that work so we can stop our offending and reoffending. We need programs and services that come out into our community that meet our needs so that they're in language or that they're easily understood. I don't want to have to go into town and attend a program because that means that I have no support accommodation and a lot of the demons that people got them into trouble in the first place, like alcohol and drugs was readily available in those um, centres where the programs were being um, held. How does racism and trauma relate to law-breaking? I think until there's a level of understanding of people's taking ownership of their own biases and prejudices and uh, there's discretion is police discretion, for example, and, and whether you decide whether you arrest someone or what decision you make, that you can justify that in, in the term of fairness. I think a lot of that 
uh, is missing out of systems. I think people deliver business as usual and can't see systemic racism built into policies where they really impact unfairly on here in the Northern Territory Aboriginal Territorians. Have we learned to live with racism rather than dealing with the issue? That's a really good question. I think non-Aboriginal people have learned to live with racism. I think we're still trying to fight it. I think we're tired of fighting it. We're tired of raising the issue and being told that we see it when it's not there. It's just a lame excuse that we're happy to throw on the table and put the race issue as the argument to deflect away from the real problem. But it is real. It does impact on Aboriginal people's well-being and it's ever so present. And I want people to change the way that they see racism because certainly in my lifetime and obviously my parents' lifetime and my grandparents' lifetime, it was probably far more evident than what it is now and we just have to have it stopped. You've experienced grief in so many ways. How do you navigate grief? When I was a child, my parents stopped us going to funerals when we were around the age of 10 because they knew that we weren't mature enough to process grief in the number of deaths that were in the family, both preventable and more. And I soon realised that we could spend weeks and weeks in grief for a very long time. When I was a police officer... Uh, you learn to switch off. You're trained to package uh, bad experiences and to have this uh, blankness about you. So I got to a point in the police force where I would attend very close family funerals as an adult and have no emotion whatsoever. And uh, then I realised that something wasn't quite right. That reaction was not... um, the right reaction that was needed. So I decided and obviously had experienced more grief as we got older and as adults, I feel that we, 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 we have grief way too often as Aboriginal people. I don't deal with it well anymore. I think there's very few happy times in Aboriginal people's lives because we're always attending funerals or we're going to preventable deaths or suicides because our services weren't available or something happened um, that um, people didn't know they could get help for. I feel that grief and trauma is part of every Aboriginal person's life and it doesn't need to when I compare it to non-Aboriginal people's mm. lives. What do you want for the next generation? I want, I want, like, I've got two children. I want them to thrive and survive. I don't want them to have to be resilient or, bra- or brave or courageous. I don't want them to deal with trauma and grief because I think they will be amazing people as will um, so many other people, they don't have to deal with that in their lives. I think there's so many layers that we can take off Aboriginal people that um, will make us be able to be prime ministers and professionals. I don't want people to think that they can't be something because they're Aboriginal. I want people to know that racism impacts 
on us and it's it's toxic and it has to stop. And the road ahead, how's it look, Leanne, for you? I think there's change just around the corner. I think we're we're in an era where things we're at a turning point. I certainly feel like I'm in my prime work wise to be able to create change. I'm probably more ready than ever to fight the good fight and keep fighting. You know, I've still got a good few punches left in me that I still want to do a few more things before I um, retire. Would your mum be proud of you? I think she was always proud of us. She never said, and that was because she didn't want us to think we were better than anyone else. But yes, she, she is. It's been such such a wonderful thing to talk with you, Leanne. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversation. Thank you, Charlie. I've enjoyed this. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Charlie King. Leanne Little was my guest today. I'm Charlie King. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.